Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The words from the Old Testament lesson and from the Gospel lesson for this morning may have a very familiar ring to them. A double ring, you might even say. You see, the words that the Holy Spirit gave to Moses in Genesis 2 and then to Mark when he inspired him to write his Gospel account, together with another passage from Ephesians 5, are often used as the selected readings in Lutheran wedding services. Why is this, you might ask? Well, in the readings for the wedding, we hear God's design for marriage, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In addition, we hear the command of our Lord in the Gospel for today. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When couples go through their premarital counseling with their pastor, they often learn of God's love through this verse. That the blessed union that God has given to husband and wife is not to be broken or split or cut or torn or ripped apart. For the union of husband and wife, God has commanded to be for life. To keep the wedding bonds together and to not be ripped is a God-pleasing thing. And he bases this holy union on the perfect union of Christ and his bride, the church. Many of you were likely married in a church building, perhaps even in this one here. And it is good, truly good, right, and salutary that weddings of God's people take place in God's house, and that we would see our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, take care of and give good gifts to his bride, the church, and that the church, through her confession and through her practice, would remain faithful to her husband. The life of a Christian cannot help but be intimately woven together into the life of the church. And the life of the church cannot help but be intimately woven into the life of a Christian. A Christian is baptized, confirmed, married and buried in and from the church. One becomes baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in order that the Spirit might bring that person to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ for life everlasting. Later on in life, following a time of catechesis that should begin in the home, the catechumen makes a public confirmation of his or her faith, the faith in which he or she has been baptized, publicly professing that by the Holy Spirit, he or she will remain faithful to God and in continual worship of God, faithfully and eagerly receiving word and sacrament unto life everlasting. And later, after a few more years perhaps, many Christians will express a desire to become married and to have that marriage rite celebrated within the church as a man and a woman pledge their love and faithfulness to each other in the sight of God for life everlasting. We hear what our Lord has purposed in marriage in reading God's Word. In the marriage rite, the Old Testament reading is often the reading that we heard this morning from Genesis 2 where the Lord says, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And Moses records at the end of that reading, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
These words are repeated by St. Paul in the epistle reading from Ephesians 5, again, also often used for marriage. Words repeated by the Lord in our Holy Gospel for today. But Jesus expands upon what Moses wrote and says, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus added these words in response to a question put to him by the Pharisees. Now, they did not ask him because they were confused. They sought to trap him, asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You see, there were two rabbinic schools of thought that prevailed in that day, one that was largely in accord with God's word and one that certainly was not. The more liberal school of thought held that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, even if she simply failed to do as little as one thing to her husband's satisfaction. The Lord asked them, What did Moses command you? Now they did not come back and tell him what Moses actually commanded, but rather than what Moses allowed. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God created them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate or rip asunder. The Lord quoted from Genesis to, Genesis rather, to show these hard-hearted so-called religious leaders that God himself had instituted marriage, a holy bond that sinful man is not to break. But at that time, in Jesus' day, divorce decrees were being issued left and right and for any reason whatsoever and sometimes for no reason at all. The people of God were sinning against God by divorcing at will. The Lord himself says, I hate divorce. Now he grudgingly allows rare instances in which a divorce may be granted for reasons of adultery or for desertion. But we are not to go about looking for loopholes. We are here to hear what the Lord says about what He has instituted. Holy Scripture clearly speaks to marriage and how God has intended it. And there's no better passage for this than Ephesians 5 where Paul compares the marriage of husband and wife to the marriage of Christ and His bride, the church. In the marriage rite, the groom and the bride each vow in the presence of God to live with each other in holy marriage according to the Word of God, to love, to comfort and to honor each other, to keep each other in sickness and in health and in forsaking all others, to be wedded to each other as long as they both shall live, to love and to cherish until death does them part and as they pledge to each other their faithfulness. Again, marriage is not to be entered into lightly or inadvisedly, but it seems that it's increasingly more common Words are to mean things, but when one has no regard for what is being said, even by oneself, then vows become nothing more than empty words. We live in a time of prenuptial arrangements, a contract that states who gets what and how much in the event of a couple might divorce. Now, such a contract does little more than tell us that this couple truly does not love one another as they are already anticipating the possibility of divorce. Look at how many times celebrities marry and divorce, only to remarry and then re-divorce. 
further repeating this empty and loveless cycle. These people may initially profess their love for one another, but it is often little more than an erotic or sexual attraction. Once someone better looking or more popular or sometimes just younger comes along, the past relationship is just that, in the past. Many do not even wait for marriage to become engaged in sexual relations with each other and intimacy which God has commanded be reserved for husband and wife alone. But we need not look to blame the Hollywood culture, do we? Such adultery is prevalent throughout our society and can even be found in various branches of our own family trees. We can look to our own family trees and see which of our relatives is living with someone in a manner that God has forbidden or who has sired or conceived or born children out of the holy bounds that God has established. And yet we need not look any further than our own hearts to know that we ourselves have not always honored our marriage vows either. Maybe there was an affair, maybe not. The issue goes much deeper than that. Think of the times that your eyes have wandered and perhaps gazed lustfully upon someone not your spouse. And then go even deeper. Remember the times that you and your spouse have argued with each other, saying hurtful and spiteful things to one another, looking to cut each other down verbally. We've not honored each other as we have promised. And we do not honor each other as we ought because we do not love each other as we ought. And we do not love each other as we ought because we do not love God as we ought. We do not fear, love, and trust in God above all things because we are poor, miserable sinners. And since we do not love God as we ought, we do not love others as we ought. Not just our spouses, but our children, our grandchildren, our friends and neighbors and co-workers and even strangers. We do not say the things that we ought to. We do not approach each other in the love of the Lord and seeking to bring an erring brother to repentance and faith. We say things to one another that we ought not to say. The tongue loves to wag. The tongue is the devil's favorite weapon of war. He loves to use our wicked tongues to cut down one another, and we are all too willing far too often to help him. So we say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. For the peace of Christ is not ruling our hearts. And as to the cause and effect of this, we do not defend each other. We do not speak well of one another. We would not put the best construction on anything. We do not encourage our wayward children to return to the Lord's house, to receive the gifts that He so dearly wants to give them as long as they repent. We do not love our spouses, children, grandchildren, friends, neighbors, and strangers as we should. We love ourselves. And we are guilty, therefore, of not only adultery, but idolatry. We, in our supposedly adult wisdom, do not eagerly cling to each word that comes from the mouth of the Lord as He speaks to us in the readings, in catechesis, in hymns, and in sermon. We despise preaching in His Word. We do not gladly hear and learn it. We are not being childlike in our faith, but childish. And therefore, we risk eternity outside of the kingdom of God. And yet, and yet our Lord still calls us His children, not only because we are childish spiritually, but because we continually need to be fed. Our Lord feeds us on His Word that we may know and firmly believe, teach and confess and practice the faith that He has given us through holy baptism, through preaching, through lifelong catechesis, 
through liturgy, psalms, and hymns. He comes to us, calls us to repentance, calls us to be children of the Heavenly Father. He calls us to be fed on His Word and on His body and blood. Through these means of grace, our Lord takes us in His arms just as a mother takes her baby in her arms and feeds Him. The relationship that our Lord desires with us is more personal and far more intimate than even that a mother has with her infant child or a husband has with his wife. For God has joined us together through His Son, through His death and resurrection. Martin Luther said the following in a wedding sermon back in 1531. God's Word is actually inscribed on one's spouse. When a man looks at his wife as if she were the only woman on earth, and when a woman looks at her husband as if he were the only man on earth, yes, if no king or queen, not even the sun itself sparkles any more brightly and lights up your eyes more than your own husband or wife, then right there you are face to face with God speaking. God promises to you your husband or wife, actually gives you your spouse, saying, this one shall be yours. I am pleased beyond measure. Creatures earthly and heavenly are jumping for joy, for there is no jewelry more precious than God's Word. Through it you come to regard your spouse as a gift from God, and as long as you do that, you have no regrets. We are joined together. For Christ, the bridegroom, has loved his bride, the church, and he's given himself up for her in order to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water so he might present the church to himself in splendor without blemish or wrinkle or spot. And we do see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone as our epistle lesson for the day reads. The Lord has tasted death for you, and you will soon see and taste at this altar that the Lord is good. As our Lord has joined you together with our Heavenly Father through Jesus' death and resurrection, He draws you closer to Himself here at this table as well. He draws you closer to Him in holy absolution, where He announces to you that your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. He draws you closer to you by speaking to you as He is now in this sermon, as He did moments ago in the Scripture readings, and as He does throughout your lives in ongoing catechesis and Bible study. It is our Lord's desire that all children, children of all ages and in all times and in all places, be counted as children of God, for God loves us. And that is what God is all about. Love. God is love. God loves children. He desires that we receive His kingdom like little children, that we eagerly cling to His words and His promises, for it is in these words that our Lord grants us forgiveness of sins, salvation, and life everlasting. Through His means of grace, our Lord establishes His perfect relationship with us. Our relationship with Him is not perfect, of course, for we are not perfect. But our Lord continues to draw us closer and closer to Him in this perfect relationship as the Holy Spirit calls us by the Gospel, sanctifies us with His gifts, and keeps us in the one true faith. God makes us perfect. God prepares us for the perfection of heaven where we through faith will join the saints of all eternity 
enjoying that perfect relationship that the Lord has prepared for us, that He has wanted for us from all eternity and to all eternity. Our Lord has established in us His perfect relationship. He has given us the model for our relationships with one another, with our spouses, with our children and grandchildren, with neighbors and friends and co-workers, and yes, even with total strangers. Our Lord has moved us to act out of love for one another, for He is love. The love He has first shown to us. We love because He loved us and has shown love to us and has given His life for us. Will our relationships with one another be perfect? No, they will not. Absolutely. Because our relationship with God is not yet perfect. But we are able to forgive one another because God has forgiven us. And forgiveness is the key to any relationship, isn't it? Forgiving those who trespass against us even as God has forgiven our trespasses. We are able, by the love of Christ, to forgive one another for the Lord has forgiven you. He forgave you in holy baptism. He continually forgives you in His holy absolution. He forgives you in the preaching and proclamation of His Word this day. And He will, once again in a moment, forgive you in His holy supper. He will take you in His arms as a little child and forgive you. In His holy name, Amen.